0: All right, well, let's pray before we get started here. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you uh, for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God of mission, that you're a God of purpose, that you've been uh, accomplishing your your mission since the fall, back in Genesis 3, and that you have written into written us into your story and your mission and that you've called us to participate in it. I pray that as we think about your missional work through history today, as we look at the Old Testament, that you'd give us wisdom and insight. I pray that you'd help us to see the implications for our lives and, and I pray that it would grow our love for your word and our understanding of it. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so like Aaron said, we are going to look at the mission of God in the Old Testament today. And I will tell you up front that there is a lot that we could talk about. Okay, there's just a lot of information that we could point to. And because we're limited on time, there are some things that I had to to leave out. So, some of what you're going to get today is me kind of picking and choosing what I think are the high points of the mission of God as we see it in the Old Testament. And so, I'm going to give you that disclaimer up front. Um, I also want to tell you the way that we've kind of structured these classes right now is that they're mostly going to be a lecture format. So there's not going to be a lot of give and take or discussion. I'm going to kind of present to you the information, but I will say if you have questions as I'm talking, try to write it down. And then at the end, I'll release people who aren't interested in a discussion, and I will um, at least uh, hear your question. I don't know that I can say I'll answer it, but I'll at least listen to your question at the end. So if you have questions... Go ahead and write that down. So I want to give you a basic framework that we're going to use to think about the mission of God in the Old Testament today. Uh, three concepts that we're going to trace through the Old Testament. The first is God's desire to create a beautiful place. So we're going to look at God's desire to create a beautiful place. The second is God's desire to create a beautiful relationship with mankind. And the third is God's desire to create a beautiful purpose for mankind. So, like I said, there's a lot we could talk about, but what we're really gonna try to do is trace those three, three, three themes through the Old Testament this afternoon. There's no other place to start in a story than at the beginning. So, that's where we're gonna start in Genesis 1 and 2. We're gonna look at the creation account, and we're gonna see God's in original intent to establish this beautiful place, beautiful relationship, beautiful purpose. So if you look at Genesis 1, right, the Bible opens saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes on to tell the process by which God creates this beautiful place, right? It tells us of the all-powerful God who forms the world, who separates the heavens from the earth. He pulls back the waters to reveal dry ground he forms vegetation on the dry ground, he hangs the sun, the moon, the stars in the air. He creates the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals that creep along the ground. He creates this beautiful garden. Right? It's a beautiful place on earth and he creates it from nothing. He creates it by simply speaking it into existence. So he creates it, creates it as an expression of his power, of his creativity. And his goodness and his glory. He doesn't create it because he needs something from it. He creates it out of an abundant overflow of his goodness, his generosity, his creativity, and his kindness. Right? That's the beautiful place. And then what we see after that is that he creates a beautiful relationship. You see, as we read through Genesis, we see that this beautiful place that God is making is not complete until he creates man and woman. And of all the things God makes, man and woman are distinctly different. We see that even in how they're formed. Right? Up to this point, you get toward the end of Genesis 1, but especially in Genesis 2, up to this point, everything that God has made, he has made by speaking, into, speaking it into existence. But when he gets ready to make mankind, something different happens. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then Genesis two twenty one and 22. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we start to see this beautiful relationship even in the process that God is using here to form man and woman that's very different and much more intimate than the process he used to simply speak the rest of creation into existence. But we don't just see this beautiful relationship in the method that God uses to form man and woman. We also see it in the final form. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, so God created man and woman man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them so as we're reading through Genesis 1 and 2 we see that of everything that God made only man and w- and woman are given the dignity and status of being image bearers of God of everything that God made man and woman are the crown of his creation they're the apple of his eye he gives to man and woman unique Innate, universal value and worth and significance in a way that he didn't anything else that he made by putting his image on them. So we see this beautiful place, we see this beautiful relationship, and the last thing that we see in the opening chapters of scripture is a beautiful purpose that God gives to man and woman. Genesis 1.28 is right after God has formed mankind, he blesses them and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is sometimes called the creation mandate. God is instructing mankind here to procreate, to spread out over the face of the earth and to rule over his creation as good and gracious stewards who reflect him in the world. They are to persevere preserve, protect, watch over, and prune and garden and make fruitful this beautiful place that God has made. That's the the purpose that he gives to him. And what you're going to start to see here, let me clarify, is we're going to talk about the beautiful place, the beautiful relationship, the beautiful purpose, but I want you to think of them less of these separate concepts and more of these concentric circles that overlap. You see, part of what makes the place beautiful is the fact that God dwells in it with his people. And part of their purpose is to take care of the place. And part of their purpose is the relationship with God. So we're going to talk about these three things as we move through the scriptures, but see that they, they overlap quite a bit, right? The, the place, the purpose, and the relationship. So this purpose that they that God gives mankind helps clarify their relationship. And here's very simple terms, what we are to see of the relationship that God gives to the man and the woman. God has given them the purpose of ruling over creation under his authority, right? They are to rule over creation under his authority because he's their maker and creator. And this is the beautiful purpose that God gave mankind at creation. And this is really important for us. In understanding the mission of God, Genesis 1 and 2, they're critically important for us because they show us what God was originally after in creating the cosmos. This is what God was after. This is God's ideal. This is God's intent for the world. And as you read through scripture, you will find God working against the flow of broken human history to renew and restore those three things. The beautiful place, the beautiful relationship, the beautiful purpose. So as we come to Genesis 3, we come to the problem or the conflict in the biblical narrative, at least its starting point. And I want to look at it briefly in terms of the unraveling of these three beauties. God has has created these three beauties, the place, the relationship, the purpose, and now we're going to see their unraveling as we turn to the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis 3 introduces us to a crafty and rebellious serpent, And we're not told how this crafty, rebellious servant got into the garden, how he came to be, but the fact is that he is a crafty and rebellious servant, and and that tells us that something has gone wrong in God's beautiful place. And this brokenness that has entered God's beautiful place quickly causes a break in the beautiful relationship. The serpent twists God's words and successfully tempts the woman to disobey God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She eats of the fruit. She gives to her husband. He eats of it. And they both commit this act of rebellion, this act of sin against God by eating from the tree that he told them not to eat of. Now, at the most elementary level, that's what happened, right? God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. Just don't eat of that one. And they went and ate from the tree. So, at the most elementary level, they were just disobeying what God had said. But at a deeper level, we need to see that something else happened here. We need to see that Adam and Eve had forsaken God's beautiful relationship and his beautiful purpose. Remember, God had made man and woman to what? To rule over the earth, over the creation, under his authority. But here's what happened in the fall. They submitted themselves to the authority of a created being and in so doing put themselves above God and what he had said. So there's a, a reversal here of this order, this purpose, this relationship that God had made in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we see in Genesis 3 is a complete and fundamental fracture ...to God's intended design for the universe. The beautiful place has been tainted. The beautiful relationship has been rejected. The beautiful purpose has been ignored. And this fracture leads to a great unraveling on the earth. Adam and Eve are forced out of God's beautiful place. Now they're going to live on a cursed earth. An earth that brings forth thorns and thistles. A cursed earth that will now involve things like destructive tornadoes... ...and deadly viruses and debilitating diseases... And the beautiful relationship between Adam and Eve and God is broken as well. Rather than living in intimate relationship with their maker, Adam and Eve now encounter shame and blame and hiding. They're distanced from their loving maker. They're forced out of his garden and they're given over to spiritual and physical death. This is the exact opposite of what God had desired for mankind. And we see that even God's beautiful purpose has been marred By the effects of sin. Adam is still going to work to keep the land, but it's now going to require toil and great effort. Eve is still going to bring forth children, but it's now going to be a source of great pain and difficulty. And their marriage, this beautiful thing that God had given them, the unity that they were to have to cooperate together in bringing about God's purpose, is now going to be marked by difficulty. So Genesis 1 and 2 us, introduces us to a beautiful place, a beautiful relationship, and a beautiful purpose. And then in Genesis 3, everything begins to unravel because of mankind's rebellion against God. But even as things begin to unravel, God whispers a promise of redemption. Right? In Genesis 3, he hints at his mission to make all of this sadness come untrue. As he's cursing the serpent in Genesis 3, he declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Aaron said one of the goals for us is to see that the mission of God doesn't start in Matthew 28 or Acts chapter 2. I would say the mission of God starts here. right? Genesis 3. We could argue that, you know, it started even before the foundation of the earth. But, but as we're reading the narrative, we see it start here. Right? God makes this promise that there's going to come a man from the seed of, seed of Eve who's going to deal this serpent a crushing blow, even as he himself receives a deadly strike from the serpent. So there's this promise in Genesis 3. But before things get better, they're going to get worse. Some scholars call Genesis 3 through 8 the uncreation, because the chapters give an account of how all of these things that God has intended for his creation now unravel. And the cascading effects of sin are so devastating that Genesis 6 says, the Lord regretted he had made man on earth. And so God's response to this cascading effect of sin is to more or less do a hard reset, By sending a flood as an act of judgment against mankind. And only Noah and his family and the animals that Noah brings aboard are going to be preserved. So flood happens. But one of the things I want you to see is what happens after the flood. When Noah and his family get off the boat. Genesis 9, 1 and 2. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. And then again, Genesis 9, 7, God says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God is clearly giving here, a restatement of his creation mandate for mankind. He's just destroyed creation with the flood. He's starting over with Noah and his family, but his purpose for them is still the same be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And that's what makes, I think, what makes the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 so interesting and so disappointing. If you've read the story of the Tower of Babel, you may have simply assumed that the sin at Babel was the sin of pride, that these people wanted to build a a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves, and and I think pride was surely a part of that sin, and, and the tower was a part of that sin, but what we're supposed to see, I think, is something else is going on here too. The people of Babel were not listening to God's mandate that he had given. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Look what they say. Genesis 11, 4. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What? Right? God has just told them, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, fill the earth. And now they're saying, let's do whatever we have to do to not do that. Right? And then twice in the next five verses, the author writes about how the Lord dispersed them, the same word, dispersed them over the face of the earth. So we're to see again that mankind is disobeying God's beautiful purpose. God has instructed them, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it. But at Babel, mankind is clinging together in one place. Right? Not even the hard reset of the flood is going to resolve this human problem. It's going to take something Greater. That's where we find ourselves in Genesis 11. One other thing that's worth pointing out as we look at the Tower of Babel is that it's the point in the narrative where you see the birth of nation states or people groups. God confuses the language of the peoples. He disperses them over the face of the earth and people groups emerge. And that's important because the nations will progressively become a key focus in understanding God's mission in the world. And this is where they start, here at the Tower of Babel. And by the way, we see a cool redemption of the Tower of Babel at Pentecost in Acts 2. I'm not going to steal Aaron's thunder, just let you know. If you hear about Pentecost in Acts 2, let your mind go back to Babel, Babel, Genesis 11. Okay, so we're going to move out of Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, but I want you to see that there's a big shift that happens here in the narrative. Genesis 1 through 11 speak to God's universal dealings with the people of the world. And chapter 12, there's going to be a shift. It's going to focus on God's dealings with a single man who will become the key agent of God's redemptive plan in the world. So starting in Genesis 12, Scripture narrows down. It narrows its focus. It's, it's had a global uh, perspective at this point, but now it's going to narrow its focus to a local scale and it's going to start to tell a story about God's grand plan to bring a global redemption through a small local people. So the rest of this afternoon we're going to be talking about God's, that, that specifically, God's plan to bring a global redemption through a local people. And we're going to highlight three key covenants that we find in the Old Testament as God's redemptive plan unfolds. And they're absolutely crucial. These covenants are in understanding the Old Testament, in understanding the ministry of Christ, and in understanding God's redemptive story as we find it through the Scriptures. <clears throat> so, the first of these three covenants is God's unilateral covenant with Abraham. We find it in Genesis twelve, is where we find the promises, and then Genesis fifteen is where we find the the um, covenant making process, where that covenant is established. So after Babel, the people have all spread out across the face of the earth. Their languages have been confused. And what we find in Genesis 12 is that God then chooses just one man from all these people on the earth to form one nation, and that nation will be set apart as a special people. So in Genesis 12, look at what God says to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land then then the lord appeared to abram and said to your offspring i will give this land so what i would do if i was you maybe you you don't like to do this to your bible but i would dog tag that that page right there right genesis 12 because there's a lot that's going to happen and the rest of the Old Testament narrative is going to come back to God keeping these promises. Right? This is really an interpretive key for understanding what's going to unfold in the rest of the Old Testament. So God makes these series of promises to Abraham. And they're crucial for understanding the mission of God through the rest of Scripture. They're crucial for, crucial for understanding the Old Testament. They're crucial for understanding the ministry of Jesus So I want us to look specifically at the promises that God did make to Abraham. There are six of them. He says, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a big one. And to your offspring, I will give this land. So God gives Abram, Abraham these astounding promises. And then in Genesis 15, this is really important too. In Genesis 15, you see this fascinating ceremony in which God unilaterally ratifies these covenant promises with Abram. Right, in this process, if you read through it, it's, it sounds really weird. As you're reading through it, it wouldn't have been so weird to someone uh, 2,000 years ago reading about this. But you'll see that Abram falls asleep. Right? And while Abram is in a deep sleep this flaming torch and smoking fire pot, which represent God himself, pass between these animal carcasses that have been cut in two. Right, and this is the process by which God is ratifying these covenant promises. And here's what this means. It means that God himself is assuming full responsibility and full liability for keeping these covenant promises. Right, typically, two people who were making the covenant would lock arms and walk through these animals together and what they were signifying was let it be so to us, either one of us. If we don't keep the covenant promises, let us be like these animals. That's typically how this process of ratifying the covenant would be done. But in Genesis 15, Abram's asleep and God passes through it himself. And that's what I mean when I say this is a unilateral covenant. That God is going to keep these promises independently of Abraham's action. God is going to be the one who plans, organizes, leads, and executes his mission. Regardless of Abraham's success or failure. But he's going to invite Abraham and his people to participate in the mission. So there's a couple of other things to note here about the mission of God. One of them is that God reveals the scope of his mission. God's mission ultimately is going to be global in scope. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's chosen one man to make into one nation, but his intent is that this one nation will ultimately, ultimately be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So God reveals the scope of his mission. The second is he reveals the method of his mission. And his method is going to be to call out a select group of people to bless them and then to commission them to be his agents of blessing to others. J.D. Payne, Aaron mentioned his book. He says in his book, rather than Israel's election being a way to exclude the nations from God's blessing, it was the means of grace whereby the Gentiles would come To know him. So notice too. That in the giving of these promises. God is moving things back toward his original intent. Right. What do we see in the promises here? We see the promise of a beautiful relationship. With a select group of people. He's promising them a place. A beautiful place. And he's moving them toward a beautiful purpose. To be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But God is not going to keep these promises immediately. He tells Abram Abram in Genesis 15 right after this, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So God gives Abram these precious promises And he promises, I am going to keep these independently of you, but I'm not going to keep them immediately. And the rest of Genesis tells the story of how God sovereignly works through famine to funnel Abram's growing number of descendants to Egypt, where they're going to experience these 400 years of bitter affliction. So we get to the book of Exodus, and as you read the opening chapters of Exodus, you see that... To the Hebrews' surprise and the Egyptians' dismay, God is keeping his promises to make Abraham, Abraham into a great nation with descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. Right? The opening chapters of Exodus tell us how Pharaoh could see the Hebrews were growing in power and he didn't like it. And so he decreed infanticide, right? All of the Hebrew boys need to be thrown in the river. And despite everything that Pharaoh does, the Hebrews keep growing in number and in power. And as we see this happening, we're supposed to go, God is keeping his promise, right? I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. And that's what we see as the book of Exodus begins to unfold that the more Pharaoh curses the Hebrews, the more he brings cursing on himself. From God, And in a series of events that makes the Hebrews' name great among the nations, that's another promise, right? I will make your name great. In a series of events that makes the Hebrews' name great among the nations, God delivers Abraham's descendants through the plagues, through the Passover, through the Red Sea, and into the wilderness of Sinai. Why did he take them to Sinai? Well, ultimately, he's leading them somewhere, right? Where? To a land, the land that he promised them. And he's leading them, as he's leading them to that land, he forms them into a great nation with its own set of legal codes, just as he had promised, right? I will make you a great nation. That's what's happening at Mount Sinai. And as he's forming them into this great nation, he's giving them the law at Mount Sinai. He makes another covenant with them. This is the second key covenant I want to look at this afternoon. It's called the Sinaitic covenant, or sometimes you'll hear it called the Mosaic covenant, Uh, I like to to call it the Sinaitic covenant just because this really wasn't a covenant that God was making with Moses. He was making it with the the whole collective group of Israel, right? Not with Moses. It's different. God made a covenant with Abraham, one person, but here he's making a covenant with the whole group of people. And the key passage here is Exodus, whoop, skipped a slide ahead. There we go. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. God is speaking to Moses. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So the first thing I want you to see here is what I just mentioned, that this is a corporate covenant. It's not an individual covenant like the covenant with Abraham. This is a corporate covenant. The second thing I want you to see here is that this is a bilateral covenant. right? So the the covenant with Abraham was unilateral. God's saying, I'm doing this independently of you. This is a bilateral covenant. What What we mean by bilateral is that both parties have responsibilities to fulfill the covenant conditions. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if, then, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But if they don't obey God's voice and keep his covenant conditions, then they're going to experience cursing and not blessing. So it's a bilateral or conditional covenant. The third thing I want you to see here is how this covenant functions in relationship to God's covenant with Abraham. And the best way that I know to describe it to you as, is as a covenant within a covenant. So God has made this covenant with Abraham and now he's forming a new covenant with the people of Israel, and this covenant that he forms at Sinai operates within the covenant that he's already made with Abraham. So it doesn't annul the covenant that he's made with Abraham in any way. His unilateral promises to Abraham remain intact. They remain operable, but now, in addition to the promises that he made Abraham, he's going to relate to Abraham's descendants through this conditional covenant. And we're going to talk about how these two covenants kind of operate together throughout the Old Testament uh, and, and some interesting ways that that shows up in the narrative when we talk about, just briefly, the book of Ruth. But the final thing that we need to note here is that is God's intent for Israel in establishing this covenant. God intends, if they will obey his voice and keep his covenant, to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, priests are simply put mediators. They're mediators between God and mankind. So God intends for Israel to have a mediating role among the nations of the earth. He intends to reveal himself, to reveal his will, and to reveal his ways to the world through Israel. And he intends to do this primarily by making them into a holy nation. The word holy just means set apart for a special purpose. So the idea here is that God will set Israel apart from her neighbors, most specifically through the divine law. That's the purpose of the divine law, was to set Israel apart from their neighbors so that they might be holy as their God was holy, that they might be different from their neighbors so that they can fulfill this special purpose of revealing him to the rest of the world. So God calls Israel out of the nations. He exalts them above the nations so that they might draw the nations to god and so we could say that god's mes- method for blessing all the families of the earth here is in the old testament is primarily centripetal now centripetal means something that moves or acts toward the center it tends toward centralization or it seeks the center a centripetal force is a force that pulls an object Toward the middle, right? So, So God's mission in the Old Testament is primarily centripetal. He exalted Israel so that the other nations might see his power at work in them and be drawn to them and to him through them. And we see this in Solomon's prayer as he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings. Look at what he prays. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house I have built is called by your name see the centripetal mission there. Moses says to the people before his death, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So J.D. Payne says, Israel would become a living challenge extended to all that they may come and see that the Lord is good. This is God's intent for Israel. But in order for this intent to be realized, Israel was going to have to keep the covenant conditions. Because if they didn't keep the covenant conditions, they weren't going to experience blessing. They were going to experience cursing. And we see that no more clearly than in Deuteronomy 28. This is another one of those those chapters that will really help you understand everything that follows in in Judges and Kings and Chronicles and through the prophets and the captivity is Deuteronomy 28, really outlines the conditional nature of this covenant that he's making with them. I'm not gonna go into the details of it, but the first half, Moses basically says, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all these commandments, then you're gonna experience blessing. And he goes through and he lists this long list of blessings. And surprise, surprise, as you look through them, you go, hmm, beautiful place, beautiful relationship, beautiful purpose. And then halfway through 28, he switches and he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, you're going to experience cursing. And as you read through that, you go, hmm, that sounds a lot like Genesis 3. What we find out as we keep going through the Old Testament is that Israel can't keep the covenant conditions and we see this no more clearly than in the book of Judges right the book of Judges reveals this cyclical devolution of life in Israel as Israel rejects God's instruction and what we see as the theme in Judges is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Right? Not what God is set to do. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so we see this cycle in the book of Judges where Israel turns away from God. They fall into the hands of the enemy. God raises up a judge to deliver them. They return to God temporarily only to turn back away from him yet again. And we see this cycle over and over in the book of Judges but what we see is that every time they turn from God it gets worse and worse and worse. And worse, Until by the end of the book of Judges, Israel is at war with itself. And I mean, you read, read, the, end, read the last four chapters of Judges, it will make you sick, some of the stuff. You're like, I'm not reading, I'm like, I'm reading through this story, reading through the Bible with my son. I'm like, we get to the end of Judges, we're going to wait on this, right? Until you're about 16, right? We're not going to read this stuff. So by the end of the closing chapter of Judges, You're feeling utterly hopeless about Israel, and you're starting to wonder, how is God ever going to keep these promises that he made to Abraham through this people who is so rebellious and so far from him? And then you get to the book of Ruth, which is a beautiful story that's set during the time of Judges, and it's about a Moabite woman. Right? Of all people, a Moabite woman, a non-Israelite, a woman who is a part of the people who is Israel's most, one of Israel's most despised pagan neighbors. And so you have this story of judges who's just, who've devolved into dis, complete disobedience and disarray. And then you have the book of Ruth. You have a Moabite woman who is showing steadfast love that is reflective of God. She shows steadfast love to her Hebrew mother-in-law and she trusts in Yahweh. She's one of those people who's drawn to Israel through this centripetal mission and the end of the book of Ruth tells us that she gives birth to a son and that son would be King David's grandpa. Right, and this is one of the most ironic and fascinating twists in the, in the Old Testament. God has chosen Israel to be his kingdom of priests and his holy nation. He's entered into this conditional covenant with them, but they reject him. So what does he do? He turns to one of their pagan neighbors, a Moabite woman, and he draws her to himself, and then he works through her to keep his unilateral covenant with Abraham. And we see the power and the sovereignty of God in keeping his promise for us. Right? If Israel is not going to do their part, then God will go around them. But he's going to get it done because he promised. So from the time of Judges, we move to the time of the kings. And so Israel becomes convinced, man, the reason we have all these problems is because we don't have a king like all these other nations around us. So they convince Samuel to give him a king. He doesn't want to do it, but he agrees to do it. They have Saul first. He's a a mess. David takes over. And during David's reign, God makes a third covenant with Israel through King David. In 2 Samuel 7, King David tells, um, tells the prophet Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, yeah, that's a good idea. Go for it. Well, then Nathan goes to bed and God gives him a dream and says, actually, Nathan, I don't want David to build me a house. So Nathan goes back to To David and delivers this message from the Lord. It's up there. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so what we see here is a play on words and a covenant promise from God. David was talking about building God a bayit. In Hebrew, bayat can be used to refer to a house, a physical house, right? God wanted to to build, uh, David wanted to build God a bayat, a physical house. But God says back to him, no, I'm going to build you a bayat. But he uses that word in a different sense. You see, there's another sense of the word that's very common in the Old Testament, that word house, that can refer to a family or a social unit. So in Genesis 12, 17, uh, sorry, Exodus 12:17, it says, "The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues." He's not referring to the physical structure. He's referring to the, the family of Pharaoh and the people who lived with Pharaoh." So that's the sense of the word house" that God is using when he responds to David here. Right, God is going to make David an enduring family through one of his descendants, who's going to establish a kingdom. And here are some of the key aspects that we are to see in this covenant that God makes with David. He's going to make him a house, a family. He's going to raise up a member of David's offspring who will establish his kingdom. This offspring of David will build a house or family for the name of the Lord. And the Lord will establish the throne of David's offspring forever. So now let's talk about how this covenant works within those previous two covenants on the one hand we're to see that this covenant gives some specificity to God's covenant with Abraham right God's covenant with Abraham remains completely intact but now we are to see that God is going to accomplish these promises to Abraham in conjunction with filling this covenant fulfilling this covenant with David they're complementary right it's through the kingly seed of David that God will fulfill these promises to Abraham he gives some specificity for how he's going to do that but on the other hand we also understand that this this covenant that God makes with David falls within the Sinaitic covenant so long as the Sinaitic covenant remains intact which at this point in the, in the narrative it's intact and so what that means is as you start reading through the book of kings and you run into evil king after evil king after evil king that God is cursing them because of what he's promised in the Sinaitic covenant right If you curse, right, if you disobey, you will receive cursing and not blessing. Okay, so what it's going to take then to see this covenant with David come to fruition is a king from the line of David who faithfully obeys the instruction of the Lord as the Sinaitic covenant demands, who establishes an eternal kingdom and who fulfills God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And while it temporarily seems as though David's son Solomon could be that kingly seed, Solomon ultimately turns away from God. The kingdom of Israel is divided. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and it fails to attain God's righteous standard. In fact, the Israelites progressively turn away from God in increasing fashion. The northern kingdom is captured by the Assyrians in the late 8th century BC. The southern kingdom is captured by the Babylonians at the turn of the 7th century once again, God's people have been pushed out of their beautiful place. They've rejected His beautiful relationship. They've ignored His beautiful purpose, and they're in captivity in Babylon for seventy years. And then they return to the promised land under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild the walls of the city. They re- rebuild the temple, and throughout this time, through the time of the kings, through the time of the captivity, the time of returning to the promised land, God sends prophets. And the prophets have a consistent message. And the consistent message of the prophets is hope that will be realized through judgment. And those are the two contrasting themes you see as you read through the prophets. It's a message of judgment because Israel has failed to keep the conditions of the Sinaitic Covenant. But it's a message of hope because even still God has promised to unilaterally keep this promise to Abraham. And he's going to do it. And we see in the prophets the hope of these three things that God was after even in the garden. We see the promise of a future beautiful place. And prophet Isaiah writes, For the Lord has spoken. Sounds like a beautiful place, doesn't it? We see them foretell a beautiful place. We also see them foretell of a beautiful relationship. Prophet Jeremiah Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a beautiful relationship. Jeremiah promises that it's coming. And lastly, we see the future promise of a beautiful purpose. Isaiah 60. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. There's a beautiful purpose. So this is where we find ourselves as the Old Testament draws to a close. We find ourselves waiting. Church tradition holds that the prophet Malachi was the last Jewish prophet and that he spoke the words of God in the middle of the late 5th century B.C. And it's after Malachi's death that Jewish tradition holds that the, the glorious personal preven- presence of Yahweh departed from Israel. And prophetic speaking ceased. Right, so that's middle of the 5th century B.C. And what followed then was over 400 years of prophetic silence. Right, there was no prophetic word from the Lord. And for Israel, it was a period of political oppression. It was a period of war. It was a period of violence. And during this period, the Jews eagerly anticipated the day when God would fulfill these promises that he'd made to his people. They eagerly waited for the day of God's future beautiful place, relationship, and purpose. When those things would be restored among his people. And they expected that this would come through a promised kingly seed of David. They clung to descriptions like that that Jeremiah gave in chapter 33 when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So they're waiting for this kingly seed. But the predominant Jewish conception of the coming Messiah, this, this seed from the line of David who would come to establish the beautiful place, the beautiful relationship, the beautiful purpose, their conception of who that person would be was that he would be a warrior king. And a lot of that had to do with what was happening in their history during those 400 years. Right, The, the Greeks invaded and the Greeks were, were trying to do away with Judaism. And there was war between the Jews and the Greeks. And they were trying to preserve their, their religious beliefs. But they were under the thumb of the Greeks. And there were lots of different factors in place. But the, the Jewish conception of the guy who was going to come to fulfill these promises was that he would be a warrior king. A warrior king who would rise up and destroy the unrighteous rulers of the earth like the the Greeks and the Romans. He would purge Jerusalem of sinners and he would return Israel to its original glory. The glory that it experienced under the United King of David. And he would do this, they thought, through great military power. Great military might. Great military glory. And that's the expectation in Israel when a baby... Is born in Bethlehem. Right? And that's where Aaron's going to pick up next week as he talks about the mission of God in Jesus. So, throwing a lot of information at you, big picture overview stuff. Uh, I do want to talk about just a few implications I see for understanding the mission of God in the Old Testament. One, I hope that you can. Read the Old Testament and understand that it's a cohesive narrative, right? For a long time, I didn't know the cohesive narrative of the Old Testament. And so I would read stories and they just felt disconnected, right? They didn't make any sense to me, right? This is a completely random story. What do I do with this? I don't really know. And so what I did was I just didn't read it, (laughs) right? I didn't understand the Old Testament, so I'm not going to read it. But about two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. Right? There is so much rich truth that God has given us about his character, about his nature, about who he is. There's so much anticipation of Jesus in the Old Testament. There's so much context and contour to the life and mission of Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. So, so I hope one of the things today has helped you do is just piece together how the Old Testament's a cohesive narrative, right? How it's, it's a flow of human history and God was working throughout this history to reveal himself. The second thing, I hope, is that it gives you a framework for seeing how the Old and New Testaments are connected, right? How the Old and New Covenants are connected, right? We just finished, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount at, at Christian Challenge and this past week we, we talked about the passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Right? And so one of the things I hope having an understanding of the Old Testament can help you see is that, that Jesus was was fulfilling a lot of this Old Testament, Old Covenant promise that God had given Israel, right? Sacrificial system, purity and impurity. Right? There's so much there that Jesus is fulfilling. The third thing is, is what Aaron alluded to at the beginning, that, that God is a missionary God, right? That's part of his nature. Part of his nature is to leave where he's at and to go pursue people as he seeks to accomplish his mission. And that's not just something that we do because Jesus told us to in Matthew 28. That's something we do because we wanna be a reflection of our God, right? We're called to mission because we worship a missionary God, and the last thing I hope is that it helps you just understand your life in the context of God's mission history. Right? It helped me so much to see where I fit. Where does the church fit in this story? Right? Just to see the bigger picture that I'm a part of something bigger than just Trace's life. Right? There's so much more to to what I do each day than just well, this sounds like a good idea. Maybe I ought to do this. Right? No, God has been writing this story from the foundation of the earth and there have been thousands, millions of people who have walked this earth under the sun, same sun and moon and stars that you can look up and see who have participated in God's mission to keep moving it forward and now he's called us to play a part in that. He's given us a place. He's given us a time and this is it and this is our opportunity to be a part of it. So those are just a few of the implications. I see... um, and so I, I don't have much else to share with you. I know that was a lot of information. So I will say, um, if you, if you want to go, feel free to go. I will take questions. We have some time. So if you guys have questions, I'll listen to your questions at least, and maybe I'll try to answer them. But uh, if you want to take off, don't feel f- like you have to stay for questions if you're not interested.